Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 132 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is author James Morrow, who you may remember from our panel on Being an Atheist Writer back in episode 111. The Washington Post calls him the most provocative satiric voice in science fiction, and the Denver Post has hailed him as Christianity's Salman Rushdie, only funnier and more sacrilegious. His books include Towing Jehovah, Only Begotten Daughter, and Bible Stories for Adults, and his latest book is called Galapagos Regained. So, Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. It's great to be here. Okay, and so your new book is called Galapagos Regained, and you've said that the book was inspired by your wife asking you, isn't it time you wrote your novel about Charles Darwin? So why was it so inevitable that you would one day write a book about Charles Darwin? <laughs> well, I guess it's inevitable because uh, you should always do what your wife tells <laughs> you to do. Uh, I'm, I'm known uh, primarily as a novelist of ideas, which is uh, the domain in which we uh, sci-fi guys operate, um, as opposed to being a uh, creator of realistic psychological fiction. Um, going back to 2006, I'd published uh, an historical novel called The Last Witchfinder, which was about the coming of the scientific worldview, a celebration of the Enlightenment. And I managed to shoehorn some sort of intellectual content into just about every scene. I mean, this is a book, after all, in which the minor characters include the likes of Isaac Newton and Robert Hooke and the Baron de Montesquieu and, and Benjamin Franklin. And I wanted to do something comparable. The book uh, Last Witchfinder had some success, so I wanted to try another historical epic that would also be a dance of ideas, and I just couldn't think of anything. Weeks went by, months went by, and finally my wife, Kathy, noticed my distress and said, but Jim, ever since I've known you, you've been hectoring me about Charles Darwin. Why don't you write a novel about him? And uh, this was a kind of revelation. I think of that scene in uh, the movie Young Frankenstein uh, between Gene Wilder and, and Marty Feldman. Gene Wilder, as, as Dr. Frankenstein says to the hunchback, you know, I happen to be a very talented surgeon. I could do something about that hump. And Marty Feldman famously says, what hump? Um, and this, this was a what hump experience for me. Like, what hump? Oh my God. I've been, uh, obsessed with Darwin ever since college. Um, I'll tell you the a fuller story of my relationship to Darwin. I, I said college rather than high school. An interesting dimension of the scope trial, uh, for me is a point that Stephen Jay Gould makes in one of his essays, which is that it was not a great victory for the theory of evolution by natural selection. It was not a resounding defeat. It did not bring the Yahoos and, and the Williams Jennings Bryan species of fundamentalism to its knees. Au contraire, uh, fundamentalism enjoyed a resurgence, and the textbooks uh, scoured Darwin from their pages. When I'm studying biology as a high school student, the text does not mention evolutionary theory at all. And I came out of that course thinking that biology was all about taxonomy, that it's nothing but the Linnaeus system of classification. You sit down, you memorize the phyla. Okay. Um, the, the grand unifying idea was missing. In college, I happened to pick up a book by Robert Ardrey called African Genesis, which is uh, rooted in Darwinian theory and an argument about the uh, the descent of man, he's grinding a particular axe vis-a-vis -vis the problem of, of aggression. And he's very fond of the killer ape theory that we can account for the, the fact that human history is written in blood relative to our uh, our descent from Australopithecines. Um, well, if I were to read African Genesis today, I would probably dissent pretty vociferously from that idea but I, I owe a great debt to Robert Audrey because I had never thought of the, what, what, what Dennett calls Darwin's dangerous idea. It had never been clear to me before. The idea of thinking ourselves, of ourselves as, uh, 
as Audrey puts it, uh, risen apes rather than um, rather than fallen fallen angels. Um, the notion that uh, uh, everything that uh, is alive right now and that has ever lived and that ever will live um, is meshed in this fantastical tapestry that we're all embedded in this uh, magnificent mosaic of life. And that um, that idea so exhilarated me that I started reading a lot about Darwin, a, most of it rather more serious than, than, than Ardry and, and, and less polemical than Ardry. Well, I mean, you mentioned you started doing all this research on Darwin, and there's this passage in the book I think gives a very different image of Darwin than maybe a lot of people typically have. Uh, you say that in his youth, he'd been quite the adventurer, galloping with gauchos across the pampas, hacking his way through a Patagonian jungle, seething with hostile Indians, and traversing the Andes on a mule. He'd survived a volcano in Chile, an earthquake in Concepcion, and the mountainous seas off Cape Horn, which had nearly capsized his ship. Um, just talk about like what you found out about Darwin. Did it differ from the uh, image you'd had of him prior to that? Yeah, well, we have this default uh, sort of portrait in our brains of the bearded patriarchal Darwin, uh, he actually doesn't make a bad stand-in for God, come, <laughs> come to think of it, which is, which is rather ironic. Um, and uh, yet the young Darwin was indeed this kind of Indiana Jones figure. I think part of the reason I find this image of Darwin as Indiana Jones so striking is because I think to a large extent my image of him was shaped by that movie Creation that came out a few years ago, where you see him as sort of this sickly uh, moping guy trying all these odd therapies. Um, what did you think of how he was portrayed in that movie? Well, I thought that the movie left a lot to be desired. I mean, it's a good performance by Paul Bettany as uh, as Darwin, and, and Jennifer Connelly makes a pretty appealing uh, Emma Darwin. Uh, it's based on a, a book, a nonfiction book by uh, Randall Keynes called Darwin, His Daughter, and Human Evolution. The book is much better. Um, and uh, one thing, a liberty that the film takes with the facts, you might remember the final beats have Darwin presenting the manuscript to Emma and leaving the fate of the theory of evolution by natural selection in her hands. Uh, that he's going to let her religious sensibilities determine whether or not the world at large finds out about this idea. And um, in, in, in the, the, the scene um, that we all remember, uh, Emma is, is uh, raking through some, uh, some smoldering ashes, and we're led to believe that she has incinerated the manuscript. Um, Darwin would never have empowered his wife to do that at that point in his career. He already realized that uh, his his uh, scientific colleague, Alfred Russell Wallace, was on the point of scooping him. That Wallace uh, had come up with a, uh, a notion of, of descent with modification that mapped so precisely onto uh, the origin of species, onto Darwin's manuscript, that Darwin's uh, uh, sort of natural... Uh, scientific rivalry bone began to sing and uh, from then on there was no stopping him. He, he, he rushed the book into print. Um, but uh, of course I mean it turns out that uh, Emma has not burned the book and instead hands the manuscript to him to, to give to the, to the mail carrier to take to the publisher but I, I thought that was a needless sort of piece of melodrama because the facts of Darwin's life are, uh, are, are, are quite suspenseful and, and uh, dramatically satisfying in and of themselves. I don't know if you followed all the distribution problems that that movie had. I, I think it had a really hard time getting in the, distributed in the United States. Um, I don't know if that made you at all leery about writing a Darwin book yourself. or I don't know. What, what did you think about that whole phenomenon? <laughs> well, it wasn't the easiest job in the world to find a publisher for this book. Uh, uh, I didn't follow that story. Are you saying, Dave, that because of the subject and because of uh, the way Darwin ruffles people's feathers, that they that they didn't want to exhibit it? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, I don't I don't remember the details now, but I don't think it ever got wide release in the U.S. Um, 
it was I I know they struggled for years trying to get a distributor for it. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I only have it in the form of a DVD. I don't didn't go to any actual theatrical exhibition of it. Um, there's not a whole lot of Darwin in uh, the history of cinema, is there? I mean, like. <laughs> From the golden age of Hollywood biopics, there there was never <laughs> you know Frederick March as as Charles Darwin or you know uh, Paul Muni as Charles Darwin. Um, probably just as well because I think they would have boulderized uh, <laughs> the the theory and it, and its implications. Um, but it's a sad commentary that uh, you know there's still a kind of censorship operating, not unlike the textbook censorship that's that's still very much with us that I talked about earlier. But you do think the publishers were leery about your book because of that same sort of animus toward Darwin? I, I don't know. I wouldn't want to speculate on that. Um, the, the, the publishers that turned it down came up with other reasons. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so I'll, I'll never know. I'll never know if, if they thought it was uh, you know, just, just too incendiary. Hmm. Okay, I mean, one thing that's interesting is given that the the inception of this book was to write a book about Darwin, that Darwin is actually a fairly minor character in this book. Um, why don't you talk about that decision and, and the actual protagonist of this novel? Yeah, Darwin's a, a sort of the, the major minor character. Uh, there are scenes in which he's on stage. Uh, I think of the way I used Isaac Newton in, uh, in The Last Witchfinder, where his spirit sort of suffuses the entire uh, story of Janet Stern and her attempt to bring down the parliamentary witchcraft statute of 1604. Uh, in the case of Galapagos Regained, Darwin's spirit suffuses all of the text, but he's not on stage that much. Uh, and it's, it's the story of Chloe Bathurst, uh, a uh, Victorian actress who's rather successful in her chosen profession, but loses her job owing to her, her outspoken political views. Um, she gets a job, uh, a new job, on Darwin's estate as his governess, not a governess who is going to mind his children, but a governess who's going to tend to his menagerie, the creatures that he brought back from the Galapagos archipelago. Now, in point of fact, Darwin did not bring back a private zoo from Galapagos, but uh, the fine print on my poetic license allows me to imagine this uh, uh, vivarium, uh, this zoological dome. Um, the plot turns on uh, the great god contest. While Chloe is performing her zookeeping duties, she gets wind not only of, of Darwin's theory, but of this bizarre competition that's being staged uh, in Oxford by a hypothetical society, uh, association called the Percy Bysshe Shelley Society. Didn't really exist, but for purposes of my novel, it was, it was essential to the plot. The Percy Bysshe Shelley Society is floating a huge cash award of 10,000 pounds to anybody, any scholar or theologian or philosopher, who can prove or disprove the existence of God. And Chloe, who's very anxious to pay off her father's debts, and is also rather anxious to get back into the theater game and to give a grand performance, she decides that she's going to enter the contest and win it, and all that she needs is to be able to exhibit the live specimens, uh, the giant tortoises and these exotic and rare marine iguanas um, and the strange birds, she merely has to exhibit them to the judges while explaining the tree of life, the whole argument about the interconnectedness of all species on our planet. Darwin is scandalized by this idea. Um, he has let Chloe know that, in fact, he does regard uh, the theory of natural selection as a big problem for God, as a, indeed a potential corroboration of atheism. But he regards the contest itself as lurid and tawdry, and he wants no traffic with it. So Chloe decides she has only one alternative, um, and here uh, the reader has to suspend his or her disbelief a little bit, perhaps. <laughs> she decides her only alternative is, is to 
go to Galapagos herself and collect the very same illustrative live specimens. Um, and uh, hence the title Galapagos Regained, an allusion to uh, John Milton's uh, Paradise Regained, the sequel to Paradise Lost. So, um, for its final two-thirds, the book becomes uh, a crazy uh, Jules Verne, Indiana Jones sort of adventure. I talked about the, the Indiana Jones uh, uh, sort of uh, connection to Darwin before, and, and I very much had that in mind when I conceived of, of Chloe's escapades, trying to get to Galapagos and all the troubles and, uh, that she encounters along the way. Yeah, and I think we should maybe explain for listeners that who may not know that Percy Shelley was uh, expelled from school for writing a paper called On the Necessity of Atheism. And so that's where this Percy Bysshe Shelley Society, the idea for this yes, comes from. Yes, yes. Uh, the Percy Bysshe Shelley Society, are, there are a bunch of rakehells and, and uh, flaneurs uh, and, and sybarites who take as their hero Shelley, who... Uh, was booted out of uh, university college at, at Oxford for writing uh, the, the essay called On the Necessity of, of Atheism, uh, probably very much influenced by his uh, reading of, uh, of Lucretius, who was in turn in his famous poem, De Rerum Natura, was in turn celebrating the, the, the anti-religious philosophy of, uh, of Epicurus. Now, as an atheist, what do you, you sort of present this Percy Bysshe Shelley Society, as you say, as a bunch of, uh, hedonists. Uh, I mean, what do you think about that connection that exists in the popular imagination between atheism and hedonism? Well, I think I'm just having fun with that cliche. Um, uh, because it's, it's certainly not a, uh, a, a legitimate critique of atheism. But I just thought it would be kind of fun, you know, to have these decadent Raquel Young men, uh, you know, with, uh, with their tawdry girlfriends hmm. on their knees, uh, uh, believing that a good evening's entertainment consists in hearing believers and non-believers go at each other hammer and tongs trying to prove or disprove the existence of God. I mean, in this meeting we see of the Shelley Society, uh, one of the people, one of the panelists makes the point that um, God has never uh, heal. He doesn't heal any amputees. This reminds me of the website Why Won't God Heal Amputees dot com. I don't know if you've seen that, but <laughs> I was just wondering. Uh, oh yeah, I, I definitely had that in mind. I mean, it's, it's almost a deliberate anachronism, right? Okay, I, I was wondering if how ba- how far back that formulation of that argument went. Whoever uh, mounted that website uh, is someone I would credit with uh, originality. I think he or she invented the argument. I don't know its origin, though. I, I doubt that it goes back to the 19th century. Hmm. Okay, so you say in the afterwards of the book that you spent six years writing it. Could you just talk about that writing process and sort of what what happened in each of those years, or you know, what, was the, what happened over that <laughs> time period? I'm an awfully slow writer, and um, I always surprise myself by how damn long it takes me before I'm satisfied. But I would say, uh, you know, I, I see my novels as thought experiments, and if I set up experimental conditions that are fecund, uh, I'll keep discovering new possibilities as I engage in the composition process. I'll be surprised by this or that plot twist that I didn't see coming until it sort of asked to happen. So, I guess it was... You know, the, the truism for me is you should write the book and then, and then do the research. It was a continual sort of back and forth for me between having to, uh, write the next scene and then, uh, read yet another book about Darwin, read yet another book about, uh, natural philosophy or, or, uh, or, or biology. Well, I mean, for example, I mean, before you mentioned that Chloe sets off for the Galapagos, but before she even gets there, she spends quite a bit of time in South America. Um, just how did, why did you decide to include that section in the book? Well, I just wanted the book to be entertaining. 
Now, I've always liked the truism that all art is entertainment, that all all drama is, is melodrama. It doesn't work the other way around. Not all melodrama is drama, and not all entertainment is art. Uh, but I said, wow, I love epics. I love... Um, uh, I love Jules Verne. Uh, a lot of the South American material is an homage to uh, to Voltaire's Candide. And uh, I said, okay, I just want to see what happens if I put my characters down in that zone. Well, I mean, like in, in the South American section, I'd never even heard of the Great Rubber War. And so all, I couldn't, <laughs> I wasn't sure how much of that was uh, your invention and how much was based in historical facts. Could you talk a little bit about the Great Rubber War, and how much of that was your own imagination? <laughs> um, well, I had read several books about uh, uh, Amazonia as part of the research, because, you know, Chloe has to, uh, has to find her way across the continent of South America after she's shipwrecked off the coast of Brazil. And um, when she gets to Peru, she gets caught up, in the Great Rubber War, the the research I'd done had had given me a lot of information about uh, the rubber industry and how horribly exploitive it was of the of the natives uh, of the of the Indian population. It's uh, the 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 mistreatment uh, that's documented is uh, maps on to the historical facts. Sad to say. Uh, there was not actually an event that was called the Great Rubber War. That's sort of a poetic conceit on my, on my part. But, uh, a generation or so after the events in Galapagos regained, uh, there is, um, uh, there is a terrible conflict in the country of Colombia, uh, on the Rio de Mayo, uh, that, uh, that does correspond to what's going on in, in, in the middle section of my book. Mm-hmm. And in this in this section, they also they run into uh, Alfred Russell Wallace, who also seems to be a bit of a Indiana Jones type character. Is that uh, how much uh, historical truth is there to that? That's quite accurate. In fact, there's a sense in which the calendar of the whole novel turns on the fact that Wallace was in Manaus on the on the Rio Negro in, in Brazil in 1850. Because I thought it would be a lot of fun if Chloe ran into him, and uh, Wallace, as as I'd said, was himself an evolutionary thinker, and was developing a theory very close to Darwin's idea. Uh, he didn't nail it until he got to Indonesia, but he's playing around with it, and so I had fun with the idea that Chloe, who wants to win the contest, uh, the Great God Contest. Uh, with an evolutionary argument, is very nervous that Wallace may have heard of the contest or that he may be about to uh, even enter it or that he might regard his own notion of evolution as tantamount to, to atheism. And she's quite relieved when, when Wallace uh, presents a kind of theistic version of evolution, like, yes, and, th- and that's in fact was the case with Wallace. Um, he did have his notion of descent with modification. He did see species as transmuting uh, in accordance with natural laws, with no supernatural intervention, entirely materialist. But he did give God a role. He did imagine the insertion of a divine soul into the human species. So uh, Chloe breathes a sigh of relief. She does not have a competitor in Wallace. Well, and this approach that you talk about of sort of saying that, yeah, evolution happens, but God, it was the tool that God used to create humanity, whatever. I mean, you, you label that in the book evangelical deism. Um, what, do, what do you make of that whole phenomenon where you have, you know, extremely learned people like Francis Collins, um, you know, who, who they understand evolution through and through, but they still see some sort of teleological purpose to it? Well, I find it a frustrating and, and disingenuous argument. I mean, there's no, there's no grounds for taking that position. It's comforting, I suppose. Uh, it's a pleasurable opinion. 
but it's it's simply an opinion. I mean, the whole point of of Darwinism, the whole breakthrough, was that um, uh, we don't need to appeal to any force on high. Uh, to use the uh, the imagery um, that uh, Daniel Dennett evokes in his wonderful book called Darwin's Dangerous Idea, we don't need a crane or a or a gantry, you know, reaching down and pulling us up out of the mire. Uh, it happened from uh, from below, and I think Collins and company trivialize uh, Darwin's breakthrough. They're they're not ultimately friends of the theory of evolution. I mean, I can appreciate why many people regard Darwin's theory as bad news. He brought bad news back from the Galapagos Islands. But for me, the, the story doesn't end there. Um, there's something exhilarating about, for me, about our interconnectedness to everything that's alive right now and has ever lived and ever will live. Um, I think Darwin's sin, <laughs> uh, the reason he makes people so nervous, is not that he killed God, but that he replaced God. He didn't just make a case for atheism. He also made a case for something that's equivalent to God. It just happens to be materialist. He, he replaced God with something that for me is far more magnificent than anything one finds in Scripture. Far more magnificent complex, detailed, exhilarating, transcendent than anything that I've ever encountered in the zone of, of prophets insisting that their revelations are the case. Um, you know, he pushed the reset button on the, on the whole of the Western psyche. You know, like uh, he refreshed the screen, except something brand new came up that we weren't expecting. You know, the Christian narrative that Collins is so fond of is beautiful, it's coherent, it's very satisfactory, but it doesn't seem to have anything to do with the world that we're actually in. It's about a, a, another world for which there is no evidence. Right. I mean, and, and this book does feature characters having religious experiences and gaining faith and turning away from faith. and. It seems in the book that people become more religious as the result of feelings and experiences and lose their religion as the result of analytical thinking. Is that sort of how you see the, the dynamics of those kinds of changes of opinion? Well, I wanted to give the experience of the numinous its due. I mean, the one thing, of course, that is factual about religious revelation on this planet is that people think that it's happened to them. You know, there's no no question <laughs> that people find themselves in zones that they come back and report as being being mystical. Um, I mean, I would argue as a secular humanist that it's always worth noting that we're never out of the human in in such cases. I mean, you know, you you go down the hallway and you open each door that's labeled Revelation, Revelation one, two, three, whatever. And every time you open the door, a new door, what do you find? You don't find an angel writing in a book of gold. You don't find a cherub blowing on a trumpet. You find a human being, a human being telling you how the world works. Um, I wanted to give the numinous its due, though, as an experience, not as, an, as a fact, uh, because it is human, and I, I wanted to challenge myself. Can I communicate? what I think it would be like to touch the divine, to think you've touched the divine. And that happens to my heroine, Chloe. So she, she's, she's not a secularist throughout the entire story. She's sort of a bewildered pilgrim like, like myself. Um, she also, though, is suffering from malaria at the time. And so it could be that, that the experience is entirely physiological, 
no one will be surprised to hear that that's pretty much how I regard uh, you know, near-death experiences, all of these narratives of people going to hell to, to heaven um, and getting a t-shirt from Jesus and coming back and saying everything's cool infinite love is out there and we're all uh, on a trajectory to eternity um, you know I I think they are better explained uh, by recourse to the neurology of near death uh, rather than to Jesus so indeed Chloe gradually returns to, uh, to, 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 to reality. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I will imagine that some readers will take those scenes at face value and say, well, uh, you know, Chloe had it right when she thinks she's having an encounter with the divine. I think it's interesting when she turns away from religion, she describes the experience as exhilaration mixed with bereavement. Could you talk about what, what you mean by that? Well, um, it's, you know, Dave, it, it's so hard to be a human, human being, right? I mean, I don't know anybody who, who gets it completely right. So part of me doesn't want to begrudge people, uh, their belief in the, in the supernatural. Um, the, the problem, and this is a whole other day's discussion, is that faith so quickly becomes political. And suddenly your loyalties are divided. Things that God tells you to do are not necessarily the things that, uh, your, your obligations to your fellow human beings would tell you to do. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, Chloe, I mean, the, Chloe sets out on this mission under the assumption that Darwin's theory is, is what's going to kill God. But the book kind of suggests that the killer arguments really come from Greek philosophers like Lucretius, Epicurus, and Democritus. Um, I think which which raises the issue of do you need Darwin at all, or or would rational people conclude there is no God, even absent uh, an explanation of the apparent design in nature? Well, you could certainly um, make a case that uh, Lucretius did precisely that—that that he ended up taking uh, an atheist view, or certainly an anti-religious view of the universe without having heard of Darwin, who lies many generations in the future. Um, and of course, the whole idea of proof is, uh, it's a mischievous term, I think. Um, I mean, it's useful in, in mathematics, but I don't think science is about proof, per se. It's about uh, making predictions, uh, coming up with explanatory models of of nature. Um, that said, if there were such a thing as as a uh, a, a disproof of God, if there could be such a thing, um, it seems to me it would look a lot like Darwinian materialism coupled to, I would say, coupled to the argument from evil. And I think that one-two punch for me um, causes God to go belly up. Well, I mean, in the book, you you have Schopenhauer show up, and um, you have him list, I guess, three of the most persuasive arguments in favor of God. You have uh, Thomas Aquinas's first cause. You have uh, Paley's uh, watchmaker analogy. And uh, this idea that morality does not admit of a secular explanation. Um, yeah. I don't know. Do you want to comment on, on any of those? Yes. Well, certainly uh, there have been uh, impressive proofs of God floated throughout human intellectual history. Uh, and uh, we get to experience some of them actually quite early in the book, before even before Schopenhauer comes on stage, um, we witness the goings-on uh, at Alistair Hall, where the Shelley Society convenes every, every fortnight. So, so we get to see um, the believers attempting to, to uh, corroborate God through, well, the four, the four big proofs, the ontological and the cosmological, 
the teleological and the moral, the ontological proof being uh, St. Anselm's uh, notion that uh, because we can conceive of a perfect being, uh, such an entity necessarily exists because, uh, you know, actualities are ipso facto superior to, to mere ideas. Um, this was once a very satisfying proof. It doesn't work for us today, uh, out of a sort of a medieval mindset. Uh, the cosmological proof, um. Actually, Jen, I, I want to talk about the ontological proof. So maybe let me just jump in there because you, you have something in the book I thought was pretty funny, which you call the nontological proof. <laughs> you want to tell people about that? Uh, yeah, that's, that's one of the, one of the, I guess, a disproof that's presented. Um, it's paraded before the Rakehells at Oxford. Um, the, the nontological proof says, well, the only thing more amazing or magnificent, uh, astonishing than a universe created by an extant actual supreme being would be a universe created by a non-existent supreme being. That's even more marvelous. Therefore, God does not exist. It, it's it's a playful <laughs> disproof. I think I got it out of uh, Richard Dawkins' book, uh, the uh, the God Delusion. And in case you can't tell what we're saying, this is non, as in you know, not not ontological, non-ontological. So it's a little pun there. Uh, I don't. I was wondering, Jim, have you heard of this? There's this philosopher Stephen Law, and he has something called the Evil God Challenge, and he's written this article about how you can use the ontological proof to prove that there's an evil god and that the uh, argument is, is equally consistent as that there's a good god? I think I remember talking to my son Christopher about this uh, several months ago. He he was running it past me, and, and he said that that with, with Stephen Law's notion, of course, you, you then encounter the problem of good, right? <laughs> uh, theists have to come to terms with the problem of evil. Right, are we talking about this? Yeah, thing? yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's very clever and uh uh I I salute it. There's a there's a little animated cartoon you can watch that explains it, which is really good. So that's a that's a first stop if you're interested in that. Um I wanna ask about these these three things though, because I mean in terms of uh, I'll say what, what I would think, right, is that the argument that there must be a first cause I just don't find persuasive at all. It seems completely logically coherent to me that a chain of causality could stretch infinitely into the past, and we have trouble imagining that because of the limited abilities of our brain. But it doesn't seem to me that there's anything logically incoherent about that. Uh, any reason why there must have been a first cause? Yes, I, I certainly agree. The problem with the cosmological proof, indeed, is that it begs the question of why it should all terminate. This regression should terminate in a supreme being or the the God of Revelation. Um, and it also begs the question of, uh, well, if God is the cause of all things, if God is the prime mover, then where does God come from? God created the universe. Who created God? It, uh, it's a solution that solves precisely nothing. Uh, and then this idea that morality does not admit of a secular explanation. It seems to me that when people talk about um, the people, people will say, oh, the problem with atheism is that there, there's no objective morality. And it seems to me that Plato in the Euthyphro uh, dilemma shows that there's no such thing as objective morality with a god either. Uh, so it doesn't seem that introducing a god gets you anything. Uh, but it just seems to me that to divide up subjective, you know, morality that's 100% subjective versus morality that's 100% objective is a false dichotomy. And neither of those is coherent, and it seems to me that the truth lies somewhere in the middle, that notions of morality are, are neither 100% subjective nor 100% objective. You can't look it through a microscope and prove them, but neither are they. Is any opinion about morality just as good as any other opinion about morality? Yeah, I, I don't think it's a matter of opinion. And again, as with... Uh... As, as with the, the so-called cosmological proof, it's important to not let the promoters of the idea slip past our guard. Um, I don't believe in original sin. I don't think the default is that we are, we are depraved, uh, and that therefore morality, uh, 
can only be imposed through revelation. Uh, while it's true that Darwin uh, understood the cruelty of nature and, and kind of looked at the suffering of the, the biosphere, he looked it in the eye, um, he also took note of uh, the extreme amount of cooperation and nurturing that occurs. You could see those as antecedents of, of morality, it seems to me. So we shouldn't privilege depravity. And, and actually on that subject, I mean, there's a part in the book where one of the characters uh, has this fear about the implications of natural selection, right? Where she says, his theory now repels me for I apprehend it will authorize the masters of the world to further exploit the downtrodden. Don't feed the starving multitudes, the Darwinists will say, for such misguided charity encourages them to produce descendants doomed to compete for increasingly scarce resources. Well, uh, of course, that's the, um, the famous... Uh disaster of social Darwinism, um, although it's important to realize that social Darwinism was not the construction of Darwin and is actually on stage in human history before anybody heard of Darwin. Uh, we're talking about the ideas of the Reverend Thomas Malthus, uh, who thought that it would be a mistake to... Uh, to uh, nurture the poor because they would just go ahead and make more poor people. So you cannot lay at the feet of Darwin that kind of a cruel policy. Yeah, and I mean, it just seems like social Darwinism doesn't have anything to do with, that Darwinism is entirely about, you know, saying that nature can act as a breeder in the same way that humans can act as a breeder. And it was well understood that humans could act as breeders and that if you starve someone, they'll have fewer descendants. Or if you kill someone, they'll have fewer descendants. You don't need Darwin to tell you that. Uh, that <laughs> that, that Dar yes, Darwin exactly. tells, Dar Darwinism is, or natural selection is entirely concerned with what happens as a matter of fact in nature. And of course, it would be the naturalistic fallacy to say that because that's what happens in nature, that's the way things should be, or that's something that we should try to emulate. Uh, there's just nothing in Darwin's theory that suggests that at all. Yes, exactly. Exactly. All right, great. So uh, you, in the book, you, in addition to the scientists we've mentioned, you include some other scientists, uh, Gregor Mendel, I'll try to pronounce this, Pierre Teilhard de, Teilhard Chardin, de Chardin, yeah. uh, Rosalind Franklin. Uh, could you just talk about why you chose to include those characters in the story? Well, the... Uh the novel does have an element of the speculative or the fantastical. I mean, you know, my, my roots are science fiction, after all. Uh, and uh, I thought it would be fun, or actually dramatically satisfying, emotionally satisfying, if on his deathbed, Darwin could learn that the pieces of the theory of natural selection that were for him missing, and that he correctly identified as gaps uh, in the theory, if he knew for sure that they were going to be discovered by subsequent generations. So I've got uh, an alternative expedition trying to discover Noah's Ark as a proof of God, as a corroboration of, of scriptural revelation. Um, and they're headed to Turkey at the same time that Chloe Bathurst and company are um, are trying to get to the Galapagos Archipelago, and one member of the expedition has to stay behind in, in Constantinople, enters a, a hookah den where hallucinogenic hashish is being served, and this has the effect of him being visited by uh, travelers from the future, and uh, they include Gregor Mendel, uh, who discovered, uh, founded, essentially, the science of genetics, and Teilhard de Chardin, the French mystic, and, and Rosalind Franklin. Um, so my, uh, the, the character who's there getting to, to blow hash with these three figures engages them in conversation. Um, and uh, they do provide the three missing pieces in the case of Mendel, of course, we have his tremendous uh, 
sort of counterintuitive uh, insight into uh, into genetics. The fact that our our somatic cells lead lives that are independent of of our germ cells, and there would be such a thing as hereditary units that that uh, can dominate other hereditary units. And suddenly, the 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 mystery of of you know why you're as likely to have your aunt's eyes as your mother's eyes was was revealed. Um, in the case of Teilhard de Chardin, uh, while he carried evolution into um, teleological realms, where I feel it has no business, um, and where he kind of anticipates Francis Cullen, I think I see Teilhard as uh, uh, the, the precursor to that uh, misuse of Darwinism, uh, Teilhard was nevertheless quite an accomplished paleontologist and uh, was part of the expedition that found Peking Man. As I said earlier, to me, one of the, the sort of the sine qua non of science is its ability to predict. And uh, Darwin's theory predicts fossil hominids that eventually we would discover uh, the skulls of our ancestors, not of our uh, Neanderthal ancestors. People knew about the Neanderthals uh, in the Victorian era, but going way back, going back millions of years. Um, and uh, so Darwin gets to hear on his deathbed about Teilhard's skulls. And then finally, Rosalind Franklin, who was um, whose whose work was crucial to uh, Watson and Crick's unraveling. Of structure of the DNA molecule, the, uh, the X-ray photographs that she, that she took, and also uh, her interpretation of those photographs. It's sometimes forgotten that uh, what, what uh, James Watson uh, pilfered from her files was not simply the pictures, but was uh, her, her understanding that the the chains, the, the phosphate chains of the DNA molecule, were anti-parallel, and this strongly suggested a, uh, a double helix. Uh, Rosalind Franklin was, was uh, famously and notoriously ignored and forgotten. Uh, Watson and Crick and uh, Maurice Wilkins shared their, their Nobel Prize. They did not even mention her from the, from the podium. And and it's because she was a woman she was ignored. Is that in my understanding? That I, right? I think there's there's sort of no no question that uh, she was not taken seriously. If you read James Watson's book uh, called The Double Helix, while it offers many fascinating insights into how scientific research actually progresses and, and what a what a human all too human enterprise it is. Uh, he takes such a sardonic uh, and, uh, and and childish and, and and to be sure sexist view of, of Rosalind Franklin that you want to throw the book across the room. Hmm. In uh, in the section where uh, Teilhard de Chardin is talking, he he says in pa- I don't really know anything about his life. He says in passing that under cer- some circumstances the Vatican would again be obliged to exile me. Uh, what what is the story behind that? Well. He, he um this was a time when uh, the Catholic Church was not reconciled to Darwin. Uh they've done better in recent generations although uh, I I think <laughs> there's there's still more there's still more work to do. Uh he was uh, almost uh, kicked out of the the Jesuit order given his, his passion for evolutionary theory, I think the, the holy office, which is the euphemism for the, the Inquisition, the holy office regarded him as a borderline heretic um, because he, um, like Collins, and here I will give both Collins and, and Teilhard a lot of credit, uh, they, they, they were quite, unequivocal in their belief that evolution had occurred on this planet, that Darwin had nailed it. 
that the theory of natural selection accounted for the transmutation of species in a way that the book of Genesis never begins to do. Um, but Teilhard took it into <laughs> this mystical realm, this teleological realm, where um, we are a, uh, a transitional species, which, of course, Darwin would have agreed with, but not in the sense that Teilhard meant it. We are transitional in that we are on our way to a kind of rendezvous with the cosmic Christ, and all human minds are going to meld. And the consciousness that we enjoy day in and day out uh, will, will seem feeble, pathetic, a mere whisper compared to the, the chorus, uh, the transcendent chorus of our eventual fusion with the divine and, and, uh, and, and our union with this, this uh, omega point that lies outside of time and space. Uh, it's, it's very clever. And uh, it's satisfying in a, in a kind of intellectual way. But, as I said before, it doesn't seem to describe <laughs> the, uh, the world that we've actually inherited. Yeah, and, 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 I mean, and, and speaking of this, this conflict between the church and reality, uh, there's this line in the book where you say, when the Bishop of Panama stumbled upon Galapagos in 1535, he thought he'd found the devil's pied-a-terre. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that a is that a true thing? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's the case. Um, the Galapagos Islands are uh, kind of an inverse paradise. Um, I've never been there, but I've certainly seen enough uh, enough uh, documentary footage of the place, and I've read Herman Melville's um, long essay called "The Uncantadas." It's sometimes treated as a novella, but it's essentially a non-fiction work of Melville's in, in, in which he makes it seem like uh, uh, a really bleak, lunar, desolate place. Uh, Melville said, you know, the, the primary sound you hear on Galapagos is a hiss. The, the reptiles making their characteristic noise. Um, so... Uh, Yes, it, it has certainly struck people as, uh, as kind of hell on earth. Um, there's, a, there's a kind of wonderful irony in that, I, I think, that, uh, that uh, what seems to be the truth of our origins um, uh, emerged from, this, from, from a place that could not be more materialist, in a sense, could not be more naturalistic. So just how did you go about researching the Galapagos, and did you discover anything in the course of your research that really struck you or changed the way you thought about it? Well, one thing about Galapagos that's uh, true historically is that people were always trying to uh, start utopian communities there. Uh, there was some notion that it was a paradise, and then people were... <laughs> were uh, subject to rude awakenings when the, when they actually did attempt to cultivate the soil. But when I have a Mormon colony uh, on uh, Charles Isle, um, while that doesn't map onto absolute historical reality, there certainly could have been settlers from the, uh, the Church of the Latter-day Saints uh, trying to make a go of it uh, in, in that zone. Yeah, and I thought... You have a lot of fun in the book with this idea that the Book of Mormon is a really boring book. I, I have to believe that that was <laughs> influenced by Mark Twain's famous line that it's chloroform in print. <laughs> I'd forgotten that. Yeah, that's that's a great line. Yeah. I mean, do you want? Is there anything you want to say about the your treatment of Mormonism and the sort of odd idea that the uh, native peoples are uh, uh, descendants of a lost tribe of Israel? <laughs> well, the. Uh... Uh, as I understand the Mormon argument, uh, uh, the uh, the Americas, uh, both north and south, were uh, populated by by Israelites. That that there was a migration uh, from the Holy Land to to the New World aboard barges, and uh, there's not much archaeological evidence for for that, uh, but uh, yeah, 
<laughs> um, well, the other thing uh, that I will say about my use of the Mormons is that it does antedate the famous musical, The Book of Mormon. Uh, people might, in retrospect, think I was just, uh, I was plagiarizing uh, that work. But uh, I definitely had written those scenes long before, <laughs> long before I heard of the musical, which I haven't seen, but uh, it sounds like a lot of fun. All right, great. So, uh, unfortunately, we're getting pretty short on time here, and uh, there's a lot of stuff in this book. I've tried to cover uh, it, but uh, you, know, you can just barely scratch the surface. So, people, uh, people should uh, go check out the book if, they, uh, if they're curious about this kind of stuff. Um, Jim, I did want to kind of have you, uh, there's this, uh, section from Darwin's, uh, writings that you quote throughout this book that I, I really like. I, I just like to kind of include it in the episode here. I was wondering if you could just read this, this bit from, uh, from the end of, uh, on the origin of species. Um, yeah, here it is. Thus, from the war of nature, from famine and death, the most exalted object which we are capable of conceiving, namely, the production of the higher animals, directly follows. There is grandeur in this view of life, with its several powers, having been originally breathed into a few forms or into one, and that whilst this planet has gone cycling on according to the fixed law of gravity, from so simple a beginning, Endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful, have been and are being evolved. And you said that in one edition of your books, uh, they uh, they added some God stuff into that? <laughs> yeah, um, it's a peculiar edition of uh, On the Origin of Species. Um, that... And, and this is probably of a piece with the discussion we were having earlier about how the Scopes trial was really not the beginning of a triumph for, for Darwinism, but, uh, but really resulted in, um, uh, textbook companies being terribly afraid to bring this incendiary material into the classroom. So, uh, the, the, um, the addition of, and I, I just found this at a used book sale. The edition of uh, Origin of Species that I first read includes it in its final beats. There is grandeur in this view of life with its several powers having been originally breathed by the Creator into a few forms or into one. And that whilst this planet, etc., etc. Um, so... That's uh, that's why it's been so difficult for this idea to get traction. People always have to drag God back into the argument. <laughs> well, I think that uh, it's an important argument, and I really appreciate you doing your part to uh, you know stick up for our side here. Um, <laughs> well, you're very welcome, and I intend to keep fighting <laughs> the good fight. So I think we should uh, wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with James Morrow, and his new book is called Galapagos Regained. So, Jim, thanks so much for joining us. You're very welcome, Dave. This was a lot of fun. And that was our interview. So, big thanks again to James Morrow for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Eric's32 in Canada, and Marge1919, Alex J. Kane, Lilichka, and C.M. Fleming in the U.S. Alex J. Kane writes, this one just keeps getting better and better, with informed hosts and guests who know science fiction better than any other podcast. But it expands its horizons beyond SF and fantasy on occasion, and includes discussions of films and comics as well as books, so there's really something for almost everyone. So glad that it's continued to grow over the last few years. And Eric's32 writes, I don't normally listen to podcasts, but this is absolutely amazeballs. So big thanks again to Eric's32, Marge1919, Alex J. Kane, Lilichka, and C.M. Fleming for those great reviews. And of course, a very special thank you to all of our crowdfunders, including Stephen Segarian, Bruno Onkir, Jonathan Pottle, Kurt Donaldson, R. Chris Four, Scott Osterling, and John Marshall. So thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. To learn more, visit us at geeksguideshow.com and click on crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. 
So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.